0: Our study of the prologue to the Gospel of John has taken us many places in the course of these past five weeks. Through the initial words of John, we have seen creation and new creation. We've explored salvation and sanctification. This morning, though, I place the text before us one final time, before we return to our study in Colossians next week. And I call upon us to now see eternal death. And eternal life. So please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of John, the Gospel of John, chapter one. And I want to bring to you the final part of the message that I have titled, Living a Sustained Life in Christ, Enjoying the Gift of Christ. And please stand for the reading of God's Word. John chapter one, beginning in verse one, we read, you may be seated it was not that long ago that a man found himself working outside on his property when suddenly he had collapsed his leg had given out and uncertain of what to do he attempted to make his way towards his house only to discover that part of his body did not work he only had use of one side Uncertain of what to do, he had noticed a trailer not too far away and thinking that he could pull himself up on that, he decided to try and scoot his way in that direction, but with only part of his limbs working. The best he could do was struggle along, dragging himself through the grass and the gravel. Tearing into his skin, it, he made very little progress. There was no phone nearby. His wife had been gone for an errand at that moment. And at this time, he was really uncertain of what was taking place, what was occurring. So the best he could do was to wait for her to return. It's easy to ask, what if his wife had not come home? Or what if she doesn't come home soon enough? The consequences could be catastrophic. I find myself asking the same question about Christ. What if Christ had not come? Last week, I asked you to consider the opposite question. What if Christ had come? It was William Stead who asked, what if Christ had come to Chicago? And so I compelled us to consider, well, what if Christ had come here? But now, now I ask you to consider What if Christ did not come? What do we miss when we miss Christ? The prologue of John gives us some answers. Verse 3 tells us, in in chapter 1, verse 3 of John, tells us that without Christ there is no creation, because by him all things were made that were made. The next verse tells us more, saying that he is light, and so without Christ there would be no light. And then verse 5 says that the light will overcome the darkness. That's hope. And so without Christ, there is no hope. Because he was a creator of creation, without Christ there's no physical life. And because verse 4 says that Christ is light, without Christ there's no way to sustain life. And if verse 5 is our hope, Without Christ, there is no enjoyment of life. All of these points point to one thing. Without the coming of Christ, there is no life. There is no physical life. There is no spiritual life. And there is no eternal life. But because Christ has come, life has come. Remember what it says in Colossians chapter 1. Because Christ has come, we have physical life. And then we come to Colossians one sixteen and 17 and read, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things Hold together so not only did christ create life but according to this verse he sustains life so we not only exist because of christ but we continue to exist because it is he alone who holds all things together if you jump down to verses 20 and 22 in that same chapter colossians chapter 1 you'll see that Because of Christ, we also have a spiritual life, and that is an eternal life as well. They read, beginning in verse 20, and through him, through Christ, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Had Christ not come, we would not have restoration and reconciliation. Therefore, it should be incredible to realize that because Christ has come, we one day will enjoy the fullness of life because we will one day enjoy the fullness of God, which is then experienced through the fullness of Of Christ we look to this future because in it we will enjoy exactly what is described in Revelation that is a place with no more tears and death shall be no more it says neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away the glorious nature of heaven is, is further captured in in Revelation 21 by these words from John. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. It is here that we find the greatest satisfaction in life because we will be fully satisfied by the presence of God. The coming of Christ, though, had another extraordinary effect. We don't have to wait until the future to fully rely upon or enjoy God. The coming of Christ allows us to enjoy life now because we can enjoy God now. And so from our text then this morning, looking upon verse 18, I want us to note finally the gift of relationship. The gift of relationship. Verse 18 of John chapter 1 reads, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. No one has ever seen God, it says. That's a slightly tragic statement because think about what is lost when God is not known, when God is not seen. The most obvious answer is that we lose all moral order of society. That's not an untrue statement, but it doesn't capture the essence of what is missed because it doesn't capture the essence of God. Consider who God is. John sixteen thirteen stipulates that, that God is truth, or Christ specifically is truth. So the logical conclusion is that if Christ does not come, we do not know truth. Psalm 103, 8 says God is good. By that same reasoning then, if Christ does not come, we do not know what goodness is. 1 John 4, 8, God is love. So consider that if Christ does not come, we don't understand love. We could go on through the list of God's attributes. And no matter where we stop, the conclusion would be that the greatest catastrophe for creation is to not know the God of creation. But the verse in, in John doesn't leave us disappointed. It actually offers some hope because it's as though no one has seen God. When we look, there is one who has been at the Father's side. He is called God also here, that is God the Son, Jesus Christ. So no one has ever seen God the Father, but at his side is God the Son, who has done what? According to our text, it says he has made him known. This is a gift of revelation. God the Son revealed God the Father by becoming flesh to dwell among us. That's what we study on Christmas Day in verses 14 and 15. No one is more qualified, no one is more equipped to reveal God the Father than God the Son. Because no one knows the Father as well as Jesus Christ does. And so it's the endeavor of God the Son to reveal the essence of God the Father. In his commentary on this passage, J.C. Ryle writes, In Christ's word and deeds and life and death, we learn as much concerning God the Father as our feeble minds can at present bear. Jesus Christ has made God known and he does so persuasively, precisely, and perfectly. The implication of this is that he has made God known. It's... Though he has made God known, he does so in a way that we can understand more accurately. It's said in Scripture, in Hebrews chapter 1, that God has been known and made himself revealed in various ways. He's spoken to us at various times in various ways. But now that fullness of revelation is seen in the fullness of Christ. He is the revelation of God. And it's by this revelation of the Son that we have a relationship with the Father. Our relationship with God, the Father, begins with Christ's relationship with the Father. If Christ was not God, his divinity would have been insufficient. If Christ was not with God, his doctrine would be incomplete or inaccurate. And if Christ was not from God, his duty would have been ineffective. Without that description of Christ, this description here in our text, as the one who is at the Father's side, there's no good news. There's no salvation because there's no redemption and and restoration but thankfully we have that phrase that he is at the Father's side. That's a Hebrew idiom or a common phrase to the Hebrews to represent intimacy. It's the same phrase used to describe John when he's at the Last Supper in John 13, 23. At that point, Jesus has just washed the disciples' feet and they've gathered and come together to the table for the Passover meal. And it's the scene is set as they sit down in verse 23 this way says one of his disciples whom Jesus loved who we know to be John one of his disciples was reclining at the table at Jesus' side more literally that refers to being in the lap so when we look at our text here John chapter 1 and it says Jesus is at the father's side it, comes out as Jesus is in the Father's lap. Two individuals could not draw any nearer to one another than to crawl up into the lap of someone else and reside there. Such a position demonstrates a familiarity with one another. This is not a position you take with a stranger. It's not even the posture of two people who know one another well. This is the closeness of two people who are familiar with one another. They know the intimate details of one another, not just their background, but who they are, as in who they are in their character, in their personhood. There's a familiarity. This position also demonstrates a confidence or a trust. It's like a child who trusts father or mother, and the child then trusts and crawls into the lap of the parent without fear of repudiation or rejection, but in confidence that the child will be loved. It's also a position that demonstrates an affection. There's a love for one another. It's like a wife who places herself in her husband's arms, expecting to be wrapped in those arms of love and feel the presence of her husband there and the presence of his love for her. This is what we see in the relationship between God the Son and God the Father. There is no relationship more perfect, more pious, or more pure than the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. This is the type of relationship that humanity, every single one of us, pursues. What the Trinity has in their deity, we pursue in our humanity. We look for a relationship to be perfect and to be peace and to be pure. We long for our relationships, whether with friends or family, with our spouses, with our children, whoever may be. We long for them to be perfect, to be without conflict or contention, without disruption or disrespect. But of course, sin has made that impossible. We seek relationships that are peace, that are holy, sanctified and sanctioned by God. And we seek relationships that are pure, free from manipulation, in which we can trust the other person's manners and motives. The reason the relationship between the Trinity is perfect, pious, and pure is because every member of that Trinity is perfect, pious, and pure. There's actually a great lesson in that, that the character of our relationship is determined by the character of our nature but that's probably another discussion. The emphasis on the text here is on the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. And we find a relationship that is uniquely special. It's a relationship that is more profound and more personal than any relationship you and I have ever experienced. You know what makes us so special, though? This is what Christ desires for those who follow him that they would have the same level of relationship with God the Father as he does. And they can, and the reason they can is because of Christ. Before his impending death, Jesus prays to the Father. And we find, as part of this prayer, these words. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. That's how he begins, that his desire is for those who follow him to be with him in the presence of God. It goes on to say for the purpose of seeing Christ's glory. It says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them, Revelation again, I made known to them your name. And I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. The prayer of Christ is for believers to be in the presence of God. And then there are two purposes given. One, to see the glory of Christ, and two, to know God the Father. Isn't that the effect of Christ coming? That people in the world would know the God who created the world? In the past, God has been seen in theophanies, in visions. Isaiah speaks of seeing the Lord upon a throne with a robe that filled the temple in chapter 6 of his book. John notes of hearing Christ call out like the voice of a trumpet and seeing the glory of Christ in Revelation chapter 1. These are visions and theophanies. The people of Israel saw the Lord as a pillar of a cloud who led them through the desert. And then Moses, of course, in Exodus 33, that we've referred to multiple times recently, saw the glimpse of the Lord through his goodness. But the inner essence of God is described in Christ. This is the nearest that anyone has ever come to seeing God in his fullness. When they looked upon the walk and the work of Christ, the people then saw more of God the Father than anyone else had before them, and anyone else since then, at least until Christ returns a second time. And so now we have this same Christ who expresses his heart's desire that people would know God in the same way that he has known God the Father. To know God is to know an everlasting love. To know God is to know eternal life. Jesus says as much in John 17, 3, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus Christ is, as God himself, who is all wise, suggests that the greatest gift that a person can receive is a gift of a relationship with one's creator. He could have said anything. Christ could have done anything. He could have given anything. What he reveals here is that the greatest human need is the need to know God the Father. And the greatest human experience is to experience God the Father. So what would happen if Christ had not come? We would not know God the Father. And we would not know eternal life. That leaves us with a question then. If the greatest gift is to know God, how do we know him? The answer is quite simple. To know God, we must know Christ. We've already established this. If nobody knows God as well as Christ, then it is Christ we must seek. But then that brings an even further question, and we must ask, how do we know Christ? There are several answers to this. D.A. Carson notes, if we are to know God, neither rationalism nor irrational mysticism will suffice. The former reduces God to a mere object, and the latter abandons all controls. Quite simply, we do not know God through reason alone, but neither do we know him through experience alone, specifically through a mystic experience. It requires so much more. The answer to knowing Christ begins where it should. First, by pursuing the grace of Christ. 2 Peter 3.18 But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. But grow in the grace of our Lord and Savior. This is the encouragement of Peter to all the believers. Most of us would say this happened at salvation. That is where we find grace most prominently displayed, because it is most prominently what forgives our sins. The gospel is a means by which God imparts his grace. It begins at that moment when we first con- are first convinced by our awful nature and how awfully it offends God. And then we begin to recognize the condemnation it deserves. And and then from there, the realization of all that begins to drive us to our knees in repentance and forward to trust in the forgiveness of our sins. And finally, to confess Jesus Christ as Lord. It is at that moment that we experience the greatest grace of all that we could ever experience, at least here, the forgiveness of our sins all our past sins, all our present sins, and even all our future sins are overcome, treated as though they never occurred. This is the greatest expression of the grace of Christ. When we should have received condemnation, we received exoneration. And apart from this grace, indeed, there's no relationship with God the Father. But that can't be the peace that peter's referring to because he says here to grow to be rescued from our sins is a one-time event once saved always saved it's eternal security but peter writes grow in the grace as though this is an ongoing action that's not a one-time event if grace is the unmerited god a favor of god given to us by him, how do we grow in it? By creating opportunities for spiritual growth. This means removing any obstruction in our lives that hinders an opportunity to experience his grace. I'm going to give you a stupid and and maybe even silly example, but I want to share from my own life. There was a time when we had all the social media channels. Part of it was to keep in touch with people while we are overseas, and part of that was also to, as a means to interact with readers on the blog. Over time, though, I found myself getting more and more angry and frustrated. I was really incensed by the superficiality of social media. I was frustrated by the lack of thoughtfulness. And the most difficult thing was just to see the open hostility of it all. The end result is we finally made the decision just to get rid of it all. It was no longer a means to experience the grace of God. And so it made more sense to remove it from our lives than to continue on. Social media has a two-fold effect. Rather than supplement our relationships, now it seems to supplant them. The second thing is that it seems to cause people to reveal things more quickly and more fully than they would have previously. You can do it quickly without any thoughtfulness that a conversation would require. And so for me, it began to diminish the grace of God rather than develop it. So we got rid of it. It obscured that grace. I've experienced the same thing with news. So that now all I do is look at headlines. Very rarely do I read, watch, or listen to the news. But maybe you don't relate to social media or the news. It could be anything. Scripture speaks to a number of things in itself. The love of money or arrogance. All these things obscure the grace of God. Sometimes it's our own preferences and our own comforts. Only you know what is obscuring the grace of God in your life. And for any of us, it may be something different. But regardless of what it is, To grow in the grace of God, to pursue this grace, the grace of Christ, we have to eliminate anything that obscures that grace. The question then becomes, are we willing to do just that for the sake of pursuing him, and ultimately for the sake of knowing God the Father? If you notice, though, Peter doesn't just give us this idea of pursuing grace. He also says to pursue the knowledge of Christ. Do not confuse the significance of this. Knowledge in this text does not merely mean learn about Christ or to pursue head knowledge only. The idea of growing in the knowledge of Christ is growing in a relationship with Christ. How is this done? John, in his first epistle writing, explains how this is done. He says, and by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. That's just a reinforcement of a truth that was written centuries earlier by Solomon. We read it in our scripture reading this morning from Proverbs chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 say, My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, Verse 5, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. From the Old Testament to the New Testament, knowing God, more specifically, knowing Christ, is equaled with obedience to Christ. This seems like a strange thing to link our knowledge with him with our obedience. But consider the effects of the Lord's commands. First, they cause us to comprehend our need for Christ. When we look at the Lord's commands, it reveals how much we fall short, specifically how we fall short of His holiness. And thus it points us to our need for the saving work of Christ. Second, they cause us to comprehend the character of God. Each of the lord's commands expose His character. as an example. They expose his goodness, and when we walk in them, we then experience that goodness because we understand how those commands are meant for our good. We begin to see how much better it is to obey rather than disobey because we experience the goodness of the Lord in that obedience. In the same way, they express his holiness as another example and cause us to be pleased by that holiness. And so the commands reveal the character of God. Obedience to them then causes us to experience the character of God. Finally, they cause us to trust God. Because they show us the character of God, they provoke us to trust him. It's kind of like a child who chooses to obey his parents. The more he obeys, the more he realizes his parent is doing something for the child's good. So as an example, when we obey, we experience his goodness. And then we realize he's good. And so we begin to trust God more. It's a cycle. The more we experience God's goodness, the more we realize we can trust him. And the more we trust him, the more we can see his goodness. When we know the commands of Christ, we know Christ. Because it shows our needs. It reveals his character and it causes us to trust him. So we know Christ by pursuing the grace of Christ. We know Christ by pursuing the knowledge of Christ. Let me add one final thing to that. We know him by pursuing the will of Christ. Paul exhorts the Colossians in chapter 1, verse 9. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. The most noble endeavor of a follower of Christ is to follow Christ. It's also the most difficult endeavor. Sometimes Christ asks us to do very difficult things, at least from our earthly perspective. But this is where a pursuit of the knowledge of Christ is necessary. If we've seen his goodness at least in those straightforward aspects and trusted him then, it's easier to follow his will in the more complicated things and the more difficult tasks. Our relationship with God the Father is dependent upon Christ's relationship with God the Father. Because they have a relationship, we can have a relationship. Sinclair Ferguson has said, We tend to be a generation of Christians who major on minor matters but do not seem to possess the true measure of the gospel in the knowledge of God. We do not really know God. At best, we know about him. The gift of Christ is a gift of relationship, so that we not only know about God, but indeed we would know God. Earlier I told you the story of a man who found himself in a predicament, alone and unable to use part of his body, All he could do was wait. What was later revealed is that the man had suffered a stroke. His wife had gone to town for lunch with a friend and had some other errands to run. It was not known when she would come home. What happens if she doesn't come? It's a loss of life. Even if he had survived physically, it could have likely altered his life. It could have limited his ability to communicate or take away his capacity to care for his property, his wife, and even himself. And so it would have been the loss of the enjoyment of life. Thankfully, the story doesn't end there for that man. Though she had several errands to run, his wife came home very quickly, feeling prompted actually to forego her errands and come directly home after lunch. While pulling up the driveway, Carol could see Mel laying on the ground. It wasn't until she would reached him, though, that she probably understood the full extent of what was happening. So she quickly summoned help, finding a neighbor, calling an ambulance, and getting somebody there. Because she showed up at the right time. <coughs> Mel was attended to quickly. He was given the medication he needed. And now we can sit here as a congregation and praise the Lord. <coughs> For his gift of life to both of them. I speculate a little bit here to say that if she had not come, though he would have had physical life, it perhaps would have lost some quality of life, some enjoyment. This is what it is with Christ. It was Jesus who said, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it abundantly. Had he not come, we could have lost the enjoyment of life, a quality of life, because we would have lost the gifts of Christ that we've talked about. First, we would have lost the gift of revelation that we saw in verses 14 and 15. If Christ reveals God, it's he who does this. It is by this revelation that we know who God is. If he had not come, we would not know God. Second, we would have lost the gift of restoration in verses 16 and 17. We would lose this great plan of salvation that the Lord wisely and willingly instituted to rescue sinners like you and I. And finally, in verse 18, we would have lost this gift of relationship. This gift of relationship is dependent upon the gift of revelation and the gift of restoration. God reveals Christ, Christ reveals God. And his plan, which leads to restoration, which then leads to a relationship with God the Father. The coming of Christ allows us to know God more thoroughly, that we may enjoy him more fully. Westminster Catechism begins by asking, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is this, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. If Christ came so that we can have life abundantly, and let's have it abundantly by enjoying christ let's pray father god we come before you with humbled in mind humbled in heart humbled in soul lord because we can see your perfect plan the plan that you wisely and willfully put in place lord and and We're the recipients, the receivers, the benefiters of that plan, Lord. Father, we we see it centralized on Christ, Lord. We look upon these gifts and we cannot help but be overwhelmed and be grateful, Lord. That indeed we can see you, that we can know you, that we can have a relationship with you because you sent your son, Jesus Christ. That he alone was the worthy sacrifice for sin, pain what we could not do and so lord we call out upon you to give you thanks we call up out upon you and give you adoration thankful that you did what we could not do lord and sitting in wonder that you went ahead and did it lord may you speak to our hearts may we look upon this And may we draw closer to you as a result. May we pursue the grace and knowledge of your son so that we may know or pursue the grace and knowledge of you as our father. We thank you for all that you have done. Your revelation, your restoration, and your relationship. It is in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.